Welcome to Timely Wisdom with Drs. Alice Bradford, Sarita Wright, Brenda Wallace, Carolyn Carlisle, and I am Venice Burns. You can watch us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Today, our guest is Dr. Gina Stewart is a prophet without honor. This was recorded on October the 13th, 2020. But what I want to do is introduce our guests. We have talked enough. Um, I want to bring this powerhouse to, to, the, to the conversation. This, this woman of God, the Reverend, I call her the Reverend Dr. Dr. Gina M. Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> she is a pastor, preacher, visionary, builder, mentor, a professor, I'm calling a professor, um, a, a, and a daughter of the Christ Missionary Baptist Church in Memphis. She has led the Congregation of Christ Missionary Baptist Church since March 1995. She is a native. She is a native of Memphis, mm -hmm. and a daughter of CMBC, of course, Christ mm -hmm. Missionary Baptist Church, where she was baptized and mentored by ministry by her predecessor and former pastor, the Reverend Eddie L. Curry. Oh. On March 4th, 1995, she was elected by majority vote to serve as the pastor of CMBC. Oh. She is the first African-American female elected to serve an established African-American Baptist congregation in Memphis and Shelby County. <laughs> Dr. Stewart is a 1978 graduate of oh. Memphis Catholic High School. She earned a Bachelor of Business Administration, a BBA in oh. Marketing in 82, of, um, from the Uni University of Mem Memphis. In 1989, she received a Master of Education, admin and this is important. I'm reading this because this is important. Mm -hmm. uh, Master of Education in Administration and Supervision from Trevecca N uh, Nazarene College in Nashville, Tennessee. She received the Master of Divinity degree from Memphis Theological Seminary in May 96. Also attended Harvard Divinity School Summer Leadership Institute for Church-Based Community and Economic Development, 2000. She mm. received a Doctor of Ministry degree from the ITC in Atlanta, Georgia in 07. All right, all right. And yet she is currently pursuing a PhD in African-American preaching at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. When I tell you this woman of God is courageous, bold, powerhouse and a preaching phenom. Go ahead and type in the comment section. Welcome the Reverend Dr. Dr. Gina M. Stewart, my sorority yes. sister. <laughs> I had to get oh, that in there. <laughs> oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. I get Dr. <laughs> Good afternoon. Hello there, Dr. Stewart, how are you? I am great, how about you? Absolutely wonderful. We are so excited that you said yes and um, time permitted for uh, for you to come on. This is a treat for us. Um, many people are, are wanting to know. Who, they don't have to ask who this woman is. All they have to do is look on the screen and say, oh, oh, my gosh, this powerful preaching phenom. <laughs> oh, my gosh, we just love her. And uh, you are doing a mighty work in the kingdom. Um, our subject is, is there honor for, is there, is there a prophet? Is there honor for the prophet? 
My God. And I'm looking, is a prophet without honor. Mm. How did you navigate through pastoring a church you grew up in? Mm. Is that the question? Oh, mm. we go, we're going right in okay. it. Okay. All right. Right. Mm. Let's just jump in. All, go all right in it. Right. Well, first of all, let me let me just let me ask you this. How you doing? Let me just, <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> I'm Excited. Through the chase, right? Can you tell I'm excited? How you doing, Doctor? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Bradford and Dr. Burns, Dr. Wright and Dr. Wallace. Thank you uh, so much for for this invitation. Um, the question: um, How did I navigate um, pastoring my home church? Um, well, I would first say with the help of the Lord. <laughs> That's the first mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. that. Um, there are two benefits, I would say, to growing up in, in a church where people know you, where they've known you since you were in pigtails. My mother joined Christ Missionary Baptist Church when I was seven years old. Hmm. Church is 53 years old, and I've been there all 53 of those years. Wow. The, the church um, is only 53 years old, and I'm the second pastor. So it's really the only wow. church, right? <laughs> it's really the only church that I have uh, ever known. And I think that there are the, the advantages of growing up in a church where you lead and serve is that people trust you because they know you. Amen. But people also don't trust you because they know you. Amen. <laughs> Fortunately, I was elected by a plurality or two third majority vote. And um, it was also doing, during a time where there is a lot of excitement and energy behind my election. I was finishing up my MDiv at Memphis Theological Seminary. And um, we were simultaneously, the church was simultaneously about to uh, vote for a pastor as I was finishing up my last semester. So there was a lot of energy, enthusiasm, anticipation around around the election. Um, But because I grew up in that church, and I would also say because my pastor who was really in a lot of ways, in my opinion, ahead of his own time. He had sort of prepared our church in his own way uh, to take the risk to step outside of the tradition and elect a woman. Um, Because when, when we were in the process, there were people who were saying on the outside, you know, if you all elect this woman, the church is going to split. If you elect this woman, you'll only have men. If you elect this woman, she won't last. She won't last. She won't last uh, more than five years. But the people were willing to test the test the tradition and take the risk of taking a chance on a woman, which that was 25 years ago, mm-hmm. um, which I think, you know, and I say this all the time that the congregation really needs to be commended for having that kind of courage, particularly in a denominational tradition that to some degree and in some instances still is challenged by by women as pastors. Uh, We know that that has evolved and it's evolving, but historically our denomination did not necessarily affirm women, particularly as pastors in some instances in the ministry. And so the congregation was was willing to take that risk. And I just think it was the right season for our church. 
Uh, I cannot say that it was every day was easy. Leadership is not easy for anyone, whether you're male mm -hmm. or female. But I was blessed to be elected to serve a congregation that was willing to give me permission to pastor. Oh, God. I, I think that's very important. Um, yes, it they, is. they gave me permission. They gave me permission and they continue to give me permission to lead and to pastor. Now, I do believe that because of the fact that I grew up in that church and I'd always been active in the church, I've served in just about every capacity except a deacon and a trustee. I was the secretary of the Sunday school. I taught Sunday school. I was an usher. I knew no signals, but I was an usher. Uh, <laughs> no, not one signal. We were shy, but we didn't know any signal. We just had a heart to serve the Lord. <laughs> and I, it was really my pastor's idea that we would start a young adult usher board. We would shop every third Sunday. Did not know a signal. <laughs> one signal. Okay, but we were shy <laughs> and sang in the choir, and it was it was an announcement clerk, uh, and enjoyed a close relationship with my pastor because his daughter and I were very close friends, and so actually he was the person that sort of put his thumb on the fact that there might be a call on my life long before I did. Oh. So he was not surprised when I went to him to say. Uh, after wrestling with the call for about a year, a year, he said, "I was wondering what took you so long. You'll, you'll never mm. say, you'll never rest until you say yes." And so, mm -hmm. I believe that navigating that transition from member to pastor, while there were some bumps and there were some challenges, and of course, a two-third majority means that one-third of the people did not vote for me. But I have to say that the other one-third did not fight me. Mm. Um, they they did not fight me and and if they fought they fought <laughs> they fought passively not aggressively mm -hmm. but one of the things that i made a point of doing and this is still a part of my dna my pastoral dna now and that is uh i i'm very uh hands on um and i believe in touching the people and so i would say that one of the things that helped me navigate um this transition as a pastor was pastoral care. Uh, I stand by that even after 25 years of ministry, that pastoral care, there is no substitute mm, for authentically right. leading, sustaining, guiding, and caring for right. the people of God. Right. Mm -hmm. And caring for them without any kind of, um, you know, reference to whether the people voted for me or whether they didn't after mm -hmm. the election was over i was everybody's pastor mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. i i made it a point to pastor everybody even the people that didn't vote for me and even the people that in some ways you know in their own ways gave me the in gave me an indication that they were not necessarily that excited about me being the pastor i pastored all of them i went to mm -hmm. the funerals i was showed up for them when they were in the hospital. I went to pray for them. I still do that. And so mm -hmm. I would I would say, you know, as, as you asked that question, how did I navigate it? I navigated it and I continue to navigate it through pastoral care. Wow. And that is because there's no substitute for genuinely caring for the people right. of God. And, you know, of course, one of my mentors, the Reverend Shirley Prince, used to always say to me, she said, Rody, you know, some people are sandpaper for your sanctification. So mm -hmm. there's a transformation, I believe, that takes place within the people 
but there's also a transformation that takes place in the preacher and the pastor. And so it's been, it's been a great marriage uh, over these 25 years. Yes, there have been challenges. Yes, there have been struggles. But overall, I can say that God has blessed me to pastor a great church. And I, I have great people and I have people who are courageous. You know, you really do have to be courageous to elect a woman Ooh. in 1995. Right. I mean, even now it now. takes a certain amount of courage, but especially in 1990 and to be the first. There's a there's always a cost to stepping to the edge of your potential and testing the limits and it took courage to do that. It, it still takes courage. Even now, after 25 years, there are still people that tell some of my members, you know, they're going to hell because they're under a woman. After 25 years, I'm sure you all have heard of Dr. Bradford. I don't know if everybody on the line is master, but uh, after all these years, I mean, they could be worshiping at Bedside Baptist. Elder Pillar is their pastor. But when people find out that they're under a woman, uh, there are people who still say, uh, they want to quote the scripture. You know what Paul said? Paul said that a woman ought not usurp, ought not usurp authority over a man. And, mm-hmm. and, and they will tell them that they are going to hell. So it has, it, it has taken courage and it has taken uh, a strong conviction uh, to follow a woman and to be there. And it's not just women that attend our church. We have men, too, that attend our church as well. And not all of them were there when I came. Many of them came after I started to pastor. My God, you um, you mentioned that it took um, you a year to answer your call. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that struggle? Yeah, I I was initially what I well I believe this. I believe my initial call to ministry occurred in 1986. I was leaving my parents' house, and I heard not necessarily an audible voice, but a hard impression Mm. calling me to ministry. I I know that it was the voice of God because I started crying. Mm. It it, it struck that kind of fear in my heart. And I just sort of, you know, pushed it out of my mind because at that particular time, I was 26 years old. I really had my mind on uh, getting married and having three children. Uh, and, And in my mind, you know, if I if I go into the ministry, I would never get married. Who's going to want to marry a woman preacher? So uh, I pushed it to the back of my mind for about three years and ignored it because I was already speaking in churches. Mm-hmm. So I figured that I could just make a bargain with God and um, partially obey. But, you know, partial obedience is still disobedience. So I uh, but God, God, let me God, let me slide for about three years. And then in the year of 1989. I had this restlessness, this 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 persistence that just would not let me rest. I, I didn't see any lights. I didn't see a bush. I didn't see myself preaching before crowds or anything like that. I just there was this persistence that would not lingering persistence that would not let me go. I, and and I took that year uh, to pray, to reflect, to think about the implications. What would my parents think? What would my dad think? You know. What would my friends think? How would this affect my relationships? And of course, after much prayer and just think about it for about a year, I finally went to my pastor on the last Sunday in December. 
1989, right before service started, it was raining cats and dogs that day. And I showed up and he, he looked at me like, what are you doing back here? You know, because I'm normally out in the audience. And I said, I need to talk to you about something. And he said, what is it? And he sat down and crossed his legs. He used to cock his head to the side. And I said, I think I'm being called to the ministry. And I started crying. And he said, I wondered what was taking, I wondered what took you so long. Mm. And then he said, you'll never rest until you say yes. Mm-hmm. And mm. that was, you know, that was the beginning of it. And then one Sunday, well, the truth of the matter is, I don't always tell this part of my story. The truth of the matter is I went to tell him that I was called to the ministry and that I was going to join another church. <laughs> How is that? I mean, and he said to me, he said, I know that sometimes the church you grow up in is not the church that you that you're raised in is not the church where you remain after you become an adult. He said, and if that's what you feel you need to do, you go ahead. Mm. But know that if you ever want to come back home, the door is always open. Oh. Well, the door never shut because I never left. <laughs> because the church, to be all, in all honesty, and this yeah. is something I think is very important to say, because at that in that season, our church was going through a significant decline. Mm. Um, you know how churches mm-hmm. follow that bell curve, and you reach you reach that plateau, and you either can sustain it or you go downward. The church was going through a significant decline. People were leaving and going to join other churches and, you know, being young and thinking that I knew everything. I was ready to move on, too. But every Sunday that I tried to, you know, go somewhere else, something would happen where I I ended up not going. I ended up staying at home. Probably a grand. I don't even think I was at home a month. But Mm. anyway, (laughs) and one day the Lord just said to me very clearly, what have you done to help make it better? That a preach. Oh, that, look here. That's he a question. To make it better. You you keep talking about what you don't like and what how things need to change. Ooh. What have you done to make it better? And when the Lord asked me that question, I made a decision then that I would go back and be a help to my pastor. And that's what I did. And so one Sunday, I was sitting in the back of the church, second row from the from the from the rear, <laughs> from the door. Church not real big, but anyway, I still sit in the back of the church. He was in the pulpit. He came out of the pulpit, walked down the center aisle, came to where I was sitting, told me to get my things, and escorted me back down the aisle to the pulpit. That was the Sunday that he announced to the church that I had been called to the ministry. Mm. So not only was I the first, not only was I the first woman elected to serve a Baptist congregation, but I was the first woman called to preach in our church. Now, this is not to say that he did not embrace women. My pastor was Methodist by tradition and profession and upbringing. He married a Baptist. Mm-hmm. And when he married a Baptist, he ended up starting to pastor the church where she was, where she grew up. And then our church and this is a sidebar, so forgive me because I, I tell multiple stories at a time. We love it. We love it. Our, our church actually started with 27 people, 30, 27 or 32 people. <coughs> 27 people that didn't even have a building or a pastor. 
So they called him from Brownsville, Tennessee to be their pastor. And when he left First Baptist Brownsville, people thought he had lost his mind because he left an established Baptist church. It was the leading church in Brownsville, I believe, First Baptist in Brownsville, to come and lead a people that did not even have a building. They barely Mm -hmm. had a name. And there were probably, at the time that he came, I know there weren't 100 people that were members of that church. Mm. So he always believed in women. I grew up in an environment where I saw women in leadership. women were, my pastor had no problem with women in leadership and he had no problem with women in ministry. I never, I don't ever remember a time in my context, which is Baptist, seeing uh, women told that they had to stand on the floor to use the rostrum, to use the pulpit on the floor, whether they were speaking for women's day, even if they were laity and not clergy, they were they were given access to the pulpit. He was he was very affirming of the gifts of women. Was not intimidated by women as we would call them strong women, women <laughs> or, or what you call alpha females. He was not uh, intimidated by strong women. And so I grew up in a church where I saw women in leadership. Now we didn't have women deacons. He didn't he didn't ordain women deacons before I died. But we had women trustees for a long time. Hmm. Women, women were in leadership. There was one was over Sunday, uh, 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 superintendent of the Sunday school. Uh, he 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 worked very closely with women in his and his circle was also um, inclusive. His inner circle hmm. it was male and female. I can remember that for for even growing up in the church that there were women and men who were around him, who he would listen to, and who he would often go to for counsel. And so um, it, it was not just a matter of being called to a church, but it was being called to a church to pastor or growing up in a church where I was reared and nurtured, but being nurtured in a church where the pastor or my predecessor uh was fearless. I won't say that he didn't have fears, but he didn't let his fears in my opinion, stop him from what doing what he believed was God's will for our church. And I think it's one of the reasons why they were able to do that 25 years ago. I mean, it's, it's the only reason why they were able to do it, in my opinion, uh, because people on the outside were more concerned about whether or not I was going to be elected than they were. Many of them had already made their mind up. So, you know, it was, the rest is really just history. Hmm. Wow, that, um, it, it's, it's, it's been just amazing. I'm listening to your story and then to, um, I'm thinking, I'm hearing you t- share about how your pastor um, was not, um, did not feel threatened or challenged by women yeah. being in leadership. And I'm thinking of my own self having grown up Methodist, but yet not necessarily seeing that same thing during the same time. And so it's quite interesting for me to hear this coming from someone who grew up Baptist. And I haven't grown up Methodist and um, in what I call the deep South Georgia. And um, and, and there were were some women who were called, but it was not something that was affirmed. Right. So so this is is just very, very powerful. Yeah. I I would also say people often talk about mentorship. You didn't ask me this question. Yes, but uh, <laughs> but but I think the other thing that 
is important to say uh, for when I came along in ministry because there were not a lot of women um, that I that I saw as preachers. I mean, I, I, there were preachers that came to our church for women days and things like that. But as a general rule, I didn't see women like we see women now. Mm-hmm. But I think what's important is is that it, that that ministry is not just taught; it's also caught. Um, and mm-hmm. what you do in ministry, mm-hmm. my pastor was my mentor, but we didn't spend a lot of time together. You know, he didn't call me and have me, and you know, I didn't ride around with him and hang out with him. But he, I did. He did allow me access into his space, yeah. and so what I learned to do was to be a student of his practices. And so much of what I know today, and what much of how I pastor, to be quite honest has to do with what I learned watching him. Now, without a doubt and without any fear of contradiction, I can say that he he gave me freedom to serve. You know, by the time I took the uh, parish practicum at, at the seminary, all of the things that we were doing or had to do, I had already done because he let me baptize. He let me serve at the table. He would let me preach. Uh, he let me dedicate some of the babies that are now, in fact, one of them, I think, is probably going on 28, 27 or 28 years old. I just saw her the other day and she said, Pastor, do you remember that I was the first baby you dedicated? But I wasn't even the pastor. Wow. And you let me wow. dedicate a baby when I was a minister. Mm. So that type of environment it was priceless for mm-hmm. me. Uh, it, it was nothing but the grace of God. I yeah. mean, nothing, nothing that I did to deserve it. It was only sheer, sheer grace and mercy of God that God would see fit to order my steps and orchestrate my life in such a way uh, that I would be nurtured and and raised really in a church like that. Only God could do something like that. Amen. I have this question. As I've already said, I'm Methodist, so denominationally tied. Um, what what has that been like for you outside of of the walls of your of your church? Um, are you all part of a convention, or um, have the other Baptist brothers, or even Methodists, or other male pastors um, outside? Or um, um, what has that interaction been like? The um, we are first of all we are we are aligned with progressive. National Baptist Convention. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of course, Baptist churches are aut- autonomous, but we are we are aligned with um, um, progressive na- progressive National Baptist. The response um, following my election was actually mixed, and the reason why it was mixed, and I, I'm saying this based on the Baptist brethren now, mm-hmm. uh, the reason why it was mixed is because, as I mentioned, when I first started preaching. Well, before I started preaching, I was speaking at a lot of churches. So many of those uh, preachers and pastors had invited me to their church to speak. So for many of them, it was a seamless transition. You know, I used to, I used to uh, go and speak for Ed, Dr. Ed Parker, Dr. the late Dr. Uh, David Larry Boyle, the late Dr. Lee Brown, uh, people like that that opened up their pulpits to me and so many others. Uh, and so when I when I took Reverend Netters, Dr. Netters at Mount Vernon, uh, Westwood, so many of them opened their doors and allowed me to speak when I was speaking 
And so when I accepted my call to preach, they were sitting up at my <laughs> at my installation, grinning like it was their daughter. So wow. Dr. Dandridge Wilburn, I mean, there were a number of brothers, uh, uh, Reverend Chester Berry Hill. There were so many of them that were affirming and encouraging Dr. Lucemba Gray. Um, the, the, many of them, uh, for them, it was a no-brainer because they said basically the same thing that my pastor said, Reverend Kenneth Whalem at Olivet Baptist Church. He used to tell mm-hmm. me all the time, when are you going to stop bootlegging the gospel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I know you're a preacher. Why don't you just go and preach? Reverend Eugene Waller. Uh, just so many of the brothers. But then there were others who basically said, in fact, <laughs> the, the, the Tuesday after my pastor let me preach my first sermon, which which he let me do on a Sunday morning at eleven o'clock. That's unheard. No, 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 our, no, no, no. You know, Sunday no, night no, is reserved for trial sermons. That's right. Well, he no, let me no, preach. So you know, it was all over the city that I had preached. So he went to Four Way Grill. That's where the preachers used to meet sometimes. All right. And he was accosted by this group of preachers. Wow. And, and, and you know, they they jumped all over him. He they said, Curry, what you doing? <laughs> let that woman preach at your church. Now, all of the women reminds me of what they said after Vashti said uh, in King Ahasuerus and his counselors came in and said, if you don't get her under control, all these women are going to be cutting up. Yep. They said to him, all of the women go start saying they preach. They, they've been called to preach. So one pastor who I'll leave nameless uh, <laughs> said to him, not because I don't know who he is, I'll just mm-hmm. his best. I won't, I won't, mm-hmm. I won't tarnish his legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said to my pastor, well, I hope that they invited her to my church to preach because when she comes to my church to preach, I'm going to make her stand on the floor. And my pastor tilted his head and said, and I hope you invite her to preach too because the day that you invite her to preach at your church, that's the day she'll preach in the pulpit at Christ Missionary. <laughs> Say listen, listen. So, you know, he was oh. he was really an advocate. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what I what I do know though, and I know this, is that there were battles that he fought that I was not aware of until he died. Wow. Everybody that embraced my ministry uh, while he was living, you know, uh the truth came out for some, not all of them. Mm-hmm. It was only a few, but the truth came out for some. For some people, it was an adjustment. For some people, they really did not want a woman. And I mean, that's just a part right. of their tradition. So I don't say that to, you know, bash anybody or to make anybody look bad. It's just a part, it was a part of the process. But as I said before, Pastor Roquette is the will of God. Mm-hmm. Pastoral care is the touchstone. It's it's what helped me to transition into that role and navigate uh, pastoring in a context where for many people it was the first time. And so even when I look back now after 25 years and I remember how frustrated I used to get uh, sometimes with people that, you know, just had issues with with uh, women, you know, when people have been accustomed to doing things a certain way and the way they've been oriented the what part of what their tradition is what their embedded theology is mm-hmm. they don't shift overnight mm-hmm. right so, right so one of the things that god has has shown shown me in retrospect is that extra grace is required mm. 
I didn't have it back then. Now I'm not. I'm not saying it because I had it, but in retrospect, mm-hmm. somebody said I think it was Kierkegaard who said life is lived looking forward and understood looking backward. Mm. And now at sixty, I was thirty-five when I was elected, but at sixty, I can look back and see that you know time is is required for people to to shift and to transition. Sometimes when we go into ministry, we're excited. We have great dreams. We have great visions. I was fresh out of seminary, had a lot of ideas. I was ready. (laughs) Dr. Roz Nichols and I were having breakfast the other day and we were were laughing at each other because we both graduated together. We were talking about our graduation picture and how bright our eyes were. And, and how excited we were, we were ready to take the world by storm. <laughs> by storm. <laughs> but little did we know. <laughs> surprise, surprise, uh, Gomer. But, but that those smiles would some with many days be replaced by the tracks of our tears. Because mm. uh, we serve the Lord with many tears. Oh but it's God. been a good journey. Can you talk about that grace, though? Um, you kind of slid it on in and, and jumped in and jumped out. It makes you great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk yeah. just a little bit about it? Well, I say that because I'm a different person now at 60 than I was at 35. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I was a grown woman, but I still wasn't finished growing. Mm-hmm. And so even as the church had to grow, I had to grow, too. Um, and... I think that one of the things that probably has happened over the years, just, you know, just it's just a part of growing in God and and going with God and growing with God and and learning life lessons and and learning from ourselves, because I believe that to be self-aware is a gift. And so to be self-aware and to be willing to interrogate my own stuff, Mm -hmm. my own baggage, to own my own stuff to own my own baggage, to admit that, you know, by temperament, by temperament, I'm impatient. By temperament, I am uh, an alpha female. By temperament, I am a type A personality. By temperament, I am a borderline perfectionist. And so you come into this this new uh, environment with all of these uncritical expectations and with these, the fears that accompany being first and knowing that there are some people, while there are some who are praying for you and encouraging you, you also know there are others that are mm. waiting for you to fail. Um, there are just mistakes that we do make. And we we learn over time, I think, to not take things per. David Boyle told me something. He's gone home to be with God now, but he was a good friend, great preacher. But he told me something when we ordained our first set of deacons. And he just said it out of the clear blue. He didn't say anything. We were laughing. He was saying, uh, yeah, I'm the pastor today. But, you know, next week I might not. He said, you know, in the Baptist church, they'll take your name off the side. won't even tell you. Yes, <laughs> so we were laughing about that and everything. And he said, but you know what, Gina? He said, I've learned not to take it personal. Mm. He said, don't take it personal. And, and and Reverend Elaine Flake said that to me one day. We were she was preaching for me one Sunday, and we drove up, and you know I looked at the parking lot. I can always tell what the crowd's gonna be like by, by the cars. 
And I was like, you know, the saints come to church when they get ready. She said, Gina, don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. <laughs> and I remember those, I remember them saying that Dr. Ball and Reverend Elaine, both of them said though, said that to me at pivotal moments in my ministry. But I think it's it's so appropriate because mm-hmm. if the truth be told, we do take a lot of things personal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we do, we do. I did. I, and sometimes I still do. I mean, I'm not saying I, not that I have a, a obtained, I'm saying, but this one apprehended. No. <laughs> I pressed toward the yes, Lord. Oh, Come here. But I do believe that at 35, you know, being young and being the first, and you know, being fearful and all of that, all of the other things that were converging at that moment, um, I probably took things a lot more personal than I should have. Um, oh. It's in some instances, uh, and, um, and you know, in retrospect, when I just think about the way people adjusted, that's really what I was really referring to about extra grace. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we people can be so mean to women in ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh. You know, I, I say this all the time. You don't have to like what I do or even like me, <coughs> but at least be kind. You know, yeah. you don't have to be rude and nasty and Ugly, you know, and and people can do all of that. They can do all of that, but but I think what if I were doing the if I were talking to my thirty five year old self now, I, I say it that way. I would probably say to that thirty five year old self what I know now, and that is the same thing that Boyle and Flake said to me: don't take it personal, and realize that people need time to grow. Well, don't you? Wow. Dr. Dean, this is uh, Dr. Brenda, and I'm I'm curious as a Baptist, when will we move even further toward having women leading churches as pastors? We still on. I, I you're the only one I still know from 1995. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any other women. Um, Baptist women who are pastors of, of, of great congregations, like I'll say it that way. Well, you know what? It's shifting. Um, in fact, three years after I was elected, Reverend Mary Moore was elected to New Salem Baptist Church um, in Memphis, which is a church where C.L. Franklin pastored for a very brief season. And then I guess maybe five to six years, maybe after after that, Dr. Lynn Dandridge, I'm, I'm not really sure how long Dr. when Dr. Dandridge was elected, but she's still serving her church in Memphis. And she followed a very egalitarian uh, type of pastor and leader, Dr. Reuben Green. She pastors Central uh, Baptist Church in Memphis, and she's been there quite a while. And I, I believe, mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't know that she grew up in that church, but I know in some ways she was a daughter of that church. Dr. Leslie Callahan uh, pastors, and I'm talking about people that have been elected now. I'm not talking about people that have actually uh, started their own church. I'm talking about people that have been elected. Uh, Dr. Leslie Callahan uh, pastors in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, and she just celebrated 10 years. Well, this was her 11th year uh, pastoring her church. So I think I think the tide is shifting but, you know, we still have a long way to go. But what I would say to uh, a woman is if a church is vacant and the church doesn't have it in their bylaws, <laughs> which in some instances the churches have it in their bylaws. Right. Uh, but if it's not right. in their bylaws, 
go ahead and apply. You have the credentials, submit your credentials and uh, let God do the rest. Mm-hmm. I think that it's going to take that. Women are going mm-hmm. to have to assert themselves. And then I think that also those of us who are in places where we serve and where we lead, it's up to us to let our ceiling be somebody else's floor. Oh, my God. Um, meaning that we too have to advocate and try to open doors and use our influence in ways that women are are considered uh, for pastoring. In fact, I was just talking to uh, a colleague of mine the other day. There's a church in Memphis that's becoming vacant. And I said to her, I said, you should submit your credentials. I mean, what do you have to lose? All they can do is say yes or no. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes women don't think about I remember when my pastor died the Sunday morning. He died on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. The Sunday morning <laughs> after he died, that Sunday morning, brothers were dropping their resumes off by the church. <coughs> he was not even cold. And they were dropping Ow. resumes off by the church. Mm-hmm. So women, <laughs> you know, I think about something uh is it Senator Val Demings or Congress? She's a congresswoman. Congresswoman, congresswoman Howard congresswoman. At the mm-hmm. NAACP uh, women's luncheon last year, she said it takes. She was said she was talking about when she decided to uh, run for Congress. She said that she was talking to a friend of hers, and he told her it takes women seven more times than men to make up their mind to try something. He said if if somebody says something to a woman about mm-hmm. attempting something, a woman has to ask seven different. Do you think I can do it? Oh, wow. I think I can have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. They accept me. <laughs> she said, he told him, but you tell a man that a man says, I'll make a great congressman. See myself. Because wow. the way we're socialized, yeah. we're socialized to second guess ourselves. Yeah. Because when mm. we display a level of confidence, then we get labeled. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, Watch you know, it. a lot of times we don't want to be labeled. Right. And so mm-hmm. we have a tendency to kind of shrink wrap ourselves mm-hmm. uh, in the interest of not being labeled or uh, misunderstood, if you will. But I, I think that, you know, we're in a season now where people are beginning to discover that women can lead and women can pastor. I mean, mm-hmm. we've always known that, but because women are doing it. And so I believe that churches will will begin to be more open. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be without a struggle. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let me ask you this, uh, yes. Dr. Stewart. Um, um, we, we talked about uh, the men who are, are colleagues of other pastors. I've found that one of my biggest challenges has really been more of the women within the congregation than it has been the men within the congregation. Mm. Um, what have you What have you found um, in your years of, of pastoring and being in this now? What has what, what your experience been like? I agree with you that uh, the women can be just as difficult as the men sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes they can be worse. Um, you know, it's it's a part of what internalized oppression does to us. Mm-hmm. You've been socialized to believe that you there are certain places and certain things that you cannot do, uh, uh, certain roles that you cannot have when you step into non-traditional roles or roles that are, quote unquote, uh, reserved for uh, males or, or male gender. And, you know, when you've been socialized to believe that, then, you know, it's almost like uh, the self-hatred almost that blacks have for blacks. Mm. And so when, when a woman steps into that role that has been historically 
held by a man and you've been told all your life that, you know, if you step into this role, you stepped out of your place. You have no business, you know, doing this. You have no business being in this role. And, and not just and it's not just, you know, in, in, in ministry, it's in any non-traditional you know, I have a, a colleague, a friend girl that's a dentist, and she said, <laughs> you know, a lot of times when she goes in, now she doesn't experience that. But, you know, in her early years of dentistry, when she goes, when she would go in and she'd walk in the room and, and they would see her, uh, you know, they would say, I, I was looking for the dentist, not a little girl. And I, I remember when uh, uh, Judge Nancy Sorak, when I was first called to the ministry, a lot of people sent me letters and Judge Nancy Sorak. Um, uh, invited me to go out to, to lunch and she was talking about the resentment and the hostility uh, that she encountered as being one of the first women in the law school. So when you, you know, I think, well, let me just, that's, that's the, that's the secondary or, or symptom. The root of it is that sexism and misogyny Ow. and patriarchy uh, has oh. to be dismantled, oh. and we oh. never really have those conversations. We talk, mm-hmm. we talk about mm-hmm. the symptoms of it, mm-hmm. but when, but when you think about what sexism does, sexism mm-hmm. induces a notion of inferiority on a certain mm-hmm. gender, on a person based on their gender. Mm-hmm. And so you can be a sexist and be a woman because it has yes. to do with how you view someone as inferior or incompetent or incapable. When when I used to work as a director of admissions for a community college, Dean Mary Cole Nichols was interviewing. I don't remember whether she was, I think she was actually interviewing for, she may have been interviewing for the president of the college at that time. I don't remember, but I do remember this. A woman asked her, do you think you have what it takes to lead this college? I'll never forget what she said. She said, brains make decisions, not gender. <laughs> but, uh, but, but hear me with your good ear. Girl. A woman asked her the question. Jesus. A woman asked her, do you think you have what it takes to lead this institution? What, what gets me is that most people would never think to ask a man that question. They, it's automatically assumed that men are capable and i'm not saying that they're not but women often have more credentials more experience more grace but we are often relegated to the sidelines because sexism misogyny and patriarchy needs to be dismantled it's deeply embedded in our churches and in society it's why people would not vote in the pre- they they did not vote straight down the ballot. Yep. That's how we ended up where we are today. Mm-hmm. Because they held their nose and voted for somebody. And I won't even call his name. Oh, okay. Thank you. Current occupation <laughs> because they could not deal with a woman as president. So you know, sexism is real. And and the problem, the problem is a lot of times. When you start talking about sexism, people think you're talking about sexist. Mm-hmm. So, so, so then it becomes a personal attack. When, as Dr. Renita Weems would say, you can critique a system and not have to critique the person. Mm-hmm. Sexism is a system. 
is embedded in structures and institutions. And it's what causes us, even as women, to ask me, well, what you want me to call you? Do I call you miss? Do I call you reverend? Wow. Like, you ask the brothers that? You ask the brothers wow. That's what I call them. To walk up to me and say, hey, Gina, I go to Bishop so and so and so and so. My members cuss them out. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Literally, <laughs> but, you know, they like, don't come up to me and call me. Tell me to call my pastor about her first thing. Not that we tripping. I'm, I'm just right. saying, though. No, this is it's called being common with the anointing. Well, well, the, the thing of it is, it's it's, it's the way that we lightly esteem and we minimize and we push women to the margins and we truncate women's gifts and refuse to acknowledge, give them or give us the honor, if to some extent, that we give them. Some of the brothers don't even have a real degree. I they, ain't walk by school. They, I, I'm gonna get in trouble. I'm, I'm oh. talking about this joke. Some of them don't even have real degrees. <laughs> and we have we have gone and earned our degrees. We have put put through blood, sweat, and tears. And then a woman, a lot of times, walk up to you and call you, call me Gina, call you Chalice, yes. which is not a big deal. Well, but I'm, I'm using that to say that oftentimes it's the way we've been socialized. It's what sexism mm. and patriarchy has done. To us. We live in a man's world. Mm. Oh, you helping you helping the folks today without a woman or a girl. That's right. That's right. That's what James said. What I have done. You didn't ask me this either. But you helping us here. You helping us. What I do. What I do though, because one of the things I think has to has to be addressed when when new members join our church, I always say, let's address the elephant in the room, because this bodysuit that I'm in is not typical. And I know that at some point, somebody is going to have something to say to you about being a member of this church. So let's just go ahead on and talk to it. Let's, let's go on and talk about it. Let's address the elephant in the room. And so I talk to them about these problematic passages of scripture uh, that are often used to subjugate and marginalize women. Uh, I, I give them articles and I also recommend that they read a book called What Paul Really Said About Women. Uh, to help them so that they can kind of navigate through all of the noise uh, that they they will hear uh, from some people. Uh, and I say to them, I said, you know, the goal is not to win the argument. Because if, if the people really wanted to win the argument, to, to, to be honest, it's too late for the discussion. Ooh. It's too late. Ooh. It's really too late for the discussion. But, but since they do want to talk to you, Mm-hmm. And they want to come to you. I'm not interested in you winning the argument. I'm interested in you remaining rooted where you came. Doctor. You don't allow them to make you second guess what mm-hmm. you the decision that you've made so that you end up thinking that you and God made a mistake. Ooh. Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh my God. You ooh, you are blessing <laughs> us, Doctor. You blessing us. That's I wanted to talk to Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to talk about the book a little bit. I know we have about okay. two minutes. I, I see Dr. Murray said we got two minutes. <laughs> and I give five minute answers. <laughs> Listen, I love it. But this book, um, one of the questions was, do you have a book? Do you have a um, movie? You need to do a mini series. But this book right here is called We Got Next. It's 10 Powerful Messages, Hope, and Transformation for Women. You have to get this book. Not only is there a book, um, 
Dr. Stewart. <laughs> you yeah. got the real deal now. That's the real deal. <laughs> she makes this slamming trail mix <laughs> that y'all need to get. Um, you Ooh. need to go on a website. Um, Dr. Gina Stewart, will you give them the website so they can go on? But when you get this trail mix, the proceeds go to a charity. So will you explain to them what's going on with that? Yes. Um, the um, the the my nonprofit is called Greater Works, mm-hmm. and it's a nonprofit devoted to ministry development and philanthropy. And in a nutshell, what I try to do with the proceeds from the trail mix and book sales mm-hmm. is I give many grants, M-I-N-I grants to nonprofits, ministries and churches that are led by women. That's basically what I do. So, you know, it, it just depends on what I have in the bank. I'll send a, you know, a gift to a nonprofit to support their work because many people are doing great work, but they don't have the capacity. And of course, uh, what I'm sending is not going to make a really big difference, but it could be an encouragement to somebody who is trying to do a good work and do a great work that uh, to, to know that somebody is investing in their ministry. The website is www.greaterworks dash D-R-G-M-S dot org. Say it again, please. Greater Works, www.greaterworks dash D-R-G-M-S dot org. She's going to put it in, in the comment section. I, I don't know if you see CJ saying that the, the trail trail mix is the will of God. <laughs> it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Come on here because CJ. Hey, look, can I tell you, I make it myself with my own. I know. I know. These hands make that trail mix. And mm. it's the bomb. I keep it by my computer and eat it all day. <laughs> Dr. Bracker, will you share with us as we come to our closing moments uh, who our guest is with us on next week? Dr. Stewart, thank you so very much for being with us. Hold on um, for us backstage. We'll be right back with you. Don't leave us. Okay. Dr. Stewart has blessed our soul today. Next week, we have Reverend Verzola Law. Come on in the room. Come back. Same time, same channel, same website or same page. God is going to bless us continuously. Don't forget, get that trail mix so you can help another woman that is in ministry. And the book, of course. Love you. Bye.